Act One of The Life and Death of Tom Thumb the Great by Henry Fielding. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. H. Scriblerus Secundus, his preface. The town hath seldom been more divided in its opinion than concerning the merit of the following scenes. While some publicly affirmed that no author could produce so fine a piece but Mr. P., others have, with as much vehemence, insisted that no one could write anything so bad but Mr. F. Nor can we wonder at this dissension about its merit, when the learned world have not unanimously decided even the very nature of this tragedy. For though most of the universities of Europe have honoured it with the name of Egregium et Maximi Pretii Opus, Tragionis Tam Antiquis, Quam Novus Longe Antiponendum, nay, Mr. B. hath pronounced Sitius Mavii Enidum, Quam Squibleri, Istius Tragodium, Hanc Credidirum, Cuius Autorum, Senecam Ipsum Tradisse, Haud Dubutarum, and the great Professor Burnham hath styled Tom Thumb Heroum Omnicum Tragicorum Facile Principem. Nay, though it hath, among other languages, been translated into Dutch, and celebrated with great applause at Amsterdam, where the burlesque never came, by the title of Meinherr Vandertham, the burgomasters receiving it with that reverent and silent attention which becometh an audience at a deep tragedy. Notwithstanding all this, there have not been wanting some who have represented these scenes in a ludicrous light, and Mr. D. has been heard to say with some concern that he wondered a tragical and Christian nation would permit a representation on its theatre so visibly designed to ridicule and extirpate everything that is great and solemn among us. This learned critic and his followers were led into so great an error by that surreptitious and piratical copy which stole last year into the world, with what injustice and prejudice to our author will be acknowledged, I hope, by every one who can happily peruse this genuine and original copy. Nor can I help remarking to the great praise of our author that, however imperfect the former was, even that faint resemblance of the true Tom Thumb contained sufficient beauties to give it a run of upwards of forty nights to the politest audiences. But notwithstanding that applause which it received from all the best judges, it was as severely censured by some few bad ones, and, I believe, rather maliciously than ignorantly reported to have been intended a burlesque on the loftiest parts of tragedy, and designed to banish what we generally call fine things from the stage. Now, if I can set my country right in an affair of this importance, I shall lightly esteem any labour which it may cost. And this either rather undertake first as it is indeed in some measure incumbent upon me to vindicate myself from that surreptitious copy before mentioned, published by some ill-meaning people under my name. And secondly, 
as knowing myself more capable of doing justice to our author than any other man, as I have given myself more pains to arrive at a thorough understanding of this little piece, having for ten years together read nothing else, in which time, I think, I may modestly presume, with the help of my English dictionary, to comprehend all the meanings of every word in it. But should any error of my pen awaken Clarice Bentleyam to enlighten the world with his annotations on our author, I shall not think that the least reward or happiness arising to me from these my endeavours. I shall waive at present what has caused such feuds in the learned world, whether this piece was originally written by Shakespeare, though certainly that, were it true, must add a considerable share to its merit, especially with such who are so generous to buy and commend what they never read from an implicit faith in the author only, a faith which our age abands in as much as it can be called deficient in any other. Let it suffice that the tragedy of tragedies, or the life and death of Tom Thumb, was written in the reign of Queen Elizabeth. Nor can the objection made by Mr. D, that the tragedy must then have been antecedent to the history, have any weight, when we consider that though the history of Tom Thumb, printed by and for Edward M-R, at the Looking-Glass on London Bridge, be of later date, still must we suppose this history to have been transcribed from some other, unless we suppose the writer thereof to be inspired, a gift very faintly contended for by the writers of our age. As to this history's not bearing the stamp of second, third, or fourth edition, I see but little in that objection, editions being very uncertain lights to judge books by, and perhaps Mr. M-R may have joined twenty editions in one, as Mr. C-L has ere now divided one into twenty. Nor doth the other argument, drawn from the little care our author hath taken to keep up to the letter of this history, carry any greater force. Are there not instances of plays wherein the history is so perverted that we can know the heroes whom they celebrate by no marks other than their names? Nay, do we not find the same character placed by different poets in such different lights that we can discover not the least sameness or even likeness in the features? The Sophonisba of Murray and of Lee is a tender, passionate, amorous mistress of Massinissa. Corneille and Mr. Thompson give her no other passion but the love of her country, and make her as cool in her affection to Massinissa as to Syphax. In the latter two she resembles the character of Queen Elizabeth. In the former she is a picture of Mary Queen of Scotland. In short, the one Sophonisba is as different from the other as the Brutus of Voltaire is from the Marius Junior of Otway, or as the Minerva is from the Venus of the Ancients. Let us now proceed to a regular examination of the tragedy before us, which I shall treat separately of the fable, 
the moral, the characters, the sentiments, and the diction. And first of the fable, which I take to be the most simple imaginable, and to use the words of an eminent author, one regular and uniform, not charged with a multiplicity of incidents, yet affording several revolutions of fortune by which the passions may be excited, varied, and driven to their full tumult of emotion. Nor is the action of this tragedy less great than uniform. The spring of all is the love of Tom Thumb for Hunker Munker, which caused the quarrel between their majesties in the first act, the passion of Lord Grizzle in the second, the rebellion, fall of Lord Grizzle and Glumdelka, devouring of Tom Thumb by the cow, and that bloody catastrophe in the third. Nor is the moral of this excellent tragedy less noble than the fable. It teaches these two instructive lessons, viz., that human happiness is exceeding transient, and that death is the certain end of all men. The former whereof is inculcated by the fatal end of Tom Thumb, the latter by that of all the other personages. The characters are, I think, sufficiently described in the dramatis personae, and I believe we shall find few plays where greater care is taken to maintain them throughout, and to preserve in every speech that characteristical mark which distinguishes them from each other. But, says Mr. D., how well doth the character of Tom Thumb, whom we must call the hero of this tragedy, if it hath any hero, agree with the precepts of Aristotle, who defineth tragedy to be the imitation of a short but perfect action, containing a just greatness in itself, etc. What greatness can be in a fellow whom history relateth to have been no higher than a span? This gentleman seemeth to think, with Sergeant Kite, that the greatness of a man's soul is in proportion to that of his body, the contrary of which is affirmed by our English physiognomical writers. Besides, if I understand Aristotle right, he speaketh only of the greatness of the action, and not of the person. As for the sentiments and the diction, which now only remain to be spoken to, I thought I could afford them no stronger justification than by producing parallel passages out of the best of our English writers. Whether this sameness of thought and expression which I have quoted from them proceedeth from an agreement in their way of thinking, or whether they have borrowed from our author, I leave the reader to determine. I shall adventure to affirm this of the sentiments of our author that they are generally the most familiar which I have ever met with, and at the same time delivered with the highest dignity of phrase. Which brings me to speak of his diction. Here I shall only beg one postulatum, viz., that the greatest perfection of the language of a tragedy is that it is not to be understood. Which granted, as I think it must be, it will necessarily follow that the only way to avoid this is by being too high or too low for the understanding, which will comprehend everything within its reach. These two extremities of style, 
Mr. Dryden illustrates by the familiar images of two inns, which I shall term the aerial and the subterrestrial. Horace goes further and showeth when it is proper to call at one of these inns and when at the other. Telephots at Peleus, cum pauper et exul utique, projicit ampulas et sesquipedalia verba. That he has a proveth of the sesquipedalia verba is plain, for had not Telephus and Peleus used this sort of diction in prosperity, they could not have dropped it in adversity. The aerial inn, therefore, says Horace, is proper only to be frequented by princes and other great men in the highest affluence of fortune. The subterrestrial is appointed for the entertainment of the poorer sort of people only, whom Horace advises Doleri Simoni Pedestri. The true meaning of both which citations is that bombast is the proper language for joy and doggerel for grief, the latter of which is literally implied in the semipedestrius as the former is in the sesquipedalia verba. Cicero recommendeth the former of these. Quidest tam furiosum vel tragicum quam verborum sonitis inanis, nulla subjecta sententia neque seantia. What can be so proper for tragedy as a set of big-sounding words, so contrived together as to convey no meaning, which I shall one day or other prove to be the sublime of longiness? Ovid declareth absolutely for the latter in Omne Genus Scripti, Gravitate Tragedia Vincit. Tragedy hath, of all writings, the greatest share in the bathos, which is the profound of scribblerus. I shall not presume to determine which of these two styles be the properer for tragedy. It sufficeth that our author excelleth in both. He is very rarely within sight through the whole play, either rising higher than the eye of your understanding can soar, or sinking lower than it careth to stoop. But here it may perhaps be observed that I have given more frequent instances of authors who have imitated him in the sublime than in the contrary. To which I answer, first, bombast being properly a redundancy of genius, instances of this nature occur in poets whose names do more honour to our author than the writers in the doggerel, which proceeds from a cool, calm, weighty way of thinking. Instances whereof are most frequently to be found in authors of a lower class. Secondly, that the works of such authors are difficultly found at all. Thirdly, that it is a very hard task to read them in order to extract these flowers from them. And lastly, it is very difficult to transplant them at all, they being like some flowers of a very nice nature, which will flourish in no soil but their own. For it is easy to transcribe a thought, but not the want of one. The Earl of Essex, for instance, is a little garden of choice rarities, whence you can scarce transplant one line so as to preserve its original beauty. This must account to the reader for his missing the names of several of his acquaintance, which he hath certainly found here, 
had I ever read their works, for which, if I have not a just esteem, I can at least say with Cicero, quae non contemno, quipe quae nunquam legerim. However, that the reader may meet with due satisfaction in this point, I have a young commentator from the university who is reading over all the modern tragedies at five shillings a dozen, and collecting all that they have stole from our author, which shall shortly be added as an appendix to this work. Dramatis Personae King Arthur, a passionate sort of king, husband to Queen Dalalala, of whom he stands a little in fear, father to Hunkamonka, whom he is very fond of, and in love with Glumdalka. Read by Todd Tom Thumb the Great, a little hero with a great soul, something violent in his temper, which is a little abated by his love for Hunkamunka. Read by Matthew Reese. Ghost of Gaffer Thumb, a whimsical sort of ghost. Read by Andrew Gauntz. Lord Grizzle, extremely zealous for the liberty of the subject, very choleric in his temper, and in love with Hunkamunka. Read by Alan Mapstone. Merlin, a conjurer, and in some sort father to Tom Thumb. Read by Wayne Cook. Noodle, courtiers in place, and consequently of that party that is uppermost. Read by Andrew James. Doodle, courtier in place, and consequently of that party that is uppermost. Read by Adrian Stevens. Foodle, a courtier that is out of place, and consequently of that party that is undermost. Read by Linda Olsen Feitak. Bailiff of the party of the plaintiff. Read by Pierre. Follower of the party of the plaintiff. Read by Thomas Peter. Parson of the side of the church. Read by David Purdy. Queen Dola Lola. Wife to King Arthur and mother to Hunka Monka, a woman entirely faultless, saving that she is a little given to drink, a little too much a virago towards her husband, and in love with Tom Thumb. Read by Sonia. The Princess Hunka Monka, daughter to their majesties, King Arthur and Queen Dola Lola, of a very sweet, gentle, and amorous disposition, equally in love with Lord Grizzle and Tom Thumb and desirous to be married to them both. Read by Jen Broda. Glumdalka of the Giants, a captive queen, beloved by the king but in love with Tom Thumb. Read by Tricia G. Cleora, maid of honor, in love with Noodle. Read by Devora Allen. Mustasha, maid of honor, in love with Doodle. Read by Shreya Sethi. Courtiers, guards, rebels, drums, trumpets, thunder and lightning. Stage directions read by Michael Max. Scene, the court of King Arthur and a plain thereabouts. Act 1. Scene 1, the palace. Doodle, noodle. Sure, such a day as this was never seen, the sun himself on this auspicious day shines like a bow, in a new birthday suit, this down the seams embroidered, that the beams, 
all nature wears one universal grin this day oh mr doodle is a day indeed a day we never saw before the mighty thomas thumb victorious comes millions of giants crowd his chariot wheels giants to whom the giants in guildhall are infant dwarfs they frown and foam and roar while thumb regardless of their noise rides on so some cock sparrow in a farmer's yard hops at the head of a huge flock of turkeys when goody thumb first brought this thomas forth the genius of our land triumphant reigned then then o arthur did thy genius reign they tell me it is whispered in the books of all our sages that this mighty hero by merlin's art begot hath not a bone within his skin but is a lump of gristle then tis a gristle of no mortal kind some god my noodle stepped into the place of gaffer thumb and more than half begot this mighty tom sure he was sent express from heaven to be the pillar of our state though small his body be so very small a chairman's leg is more than twice as large yet is his soul like any mountain big and as a mountain once brought forth a mouse so doth this mouse contain a mighty mountain mountain indeed so terrible his name the giant nurses frighten children with it and cry tom thumb is come and if you are naughty we'll surely take the child away but hark these trumpets speak the king's approach he comes most luckily for my petition flourish scene two king queen grizzle noodle doodle foodle let nothing but a face of joy appear the man who frowns this day shall lose his head that he may have no face to frown withal smile dolololo ah what wrinkled sorrow hangs sits lies frowns upon thy knitted brow whence flow those tears fast down thy blubbered cheeks like swollen gutter gushing through the streets excessive joy my lord i've heard folks say gives tears as certain as excess of grief if it be so let all men cry for joy till my whole court be drowned with their tears nay till they overflow my utmost land and leave me nothing but the sea to rule my liege i a petition have here got petition me no petition sir to-day let other hours be set apart for business to-day it is our pleasure to be drunk and this our queen shall be as drunk as we though i already have seas over em if the capacious goblet overflow with arrack punch for george i'll see it out of rum and brandy i'll not taste a drop though rack in punch eight shillings be a quart and rum and brandy be no more than six rather than quarrel you shall have your will trumpets but ha the warrior comes the great tom thumb the little hero 
giant-killing boy, preserver of my kingdom, is arrived. Scene three. Tom Thumb to them, with officers, prisoners, and attendants. Oh, welcome, most, most welcome to my arms. What gratitude can thank away the debt your valor lays upon me? Queen, aside. Oh, ye gods. When I'm not thanked at all, I'm thanked enough. I've done my duty, and I've done no more. Queen, aside. Was ever such a godlike creature seen? Thy modesty is a candle to thy merit. It shines itself, and shows thy merit, too. But say, my boy, where didst thou leave the giants? My liege, without the castle gates they stand, the castle gates too low for their admittance. What look they like? Like nothing but themselves. Queen, aside. And sure thou art like nothing but thyself. Enough. The vast idea fills my soul. I see them. Yes, I see them now before me. The monstrous, ugly, barbarous sons of whores. But ha! Huh, what form majestic strikes our eyes? So perfect that it seems to have been drawn by all the gods in council. So fair she is that surely at her birth the council paused and then at length cried out, This is a woman. Then were the gods mistaken. She is not a woman, but a giantess, whom we, with much ado, have made a shift to haul within the town, for she is a foot shorter than all her subject giants were. We yesterday were both a queen and wife. One hundred thousand giants owned our sway, twenty whereof were married to ourself. O oh, happy state of giantism, where husbands like mushrooms grow, while hapless we are forced to be content, nay, happy thought, with one. But then, to lose them all in one black day, that the same sun which, rising, saw me wife to twenty giants, setting, should behold me widowed of them all, my worn-out heart, that ship, leaks fast, and the great heavy lading, my soul, will quickly sink. Madam, believe I view your sorrows with a woman's eye, but learn to bear them with what strength you may. Tomorrow we will have our grenadiers drawn out before you, and you then shall choose what husbands you think fit. Madam, I am your most obedient and most humble servant. Think, mighty princess. Think this court your own, nor think the landlord me, this house my inn. Call for whate'er you will, you'll nothing pay. I feel a sudden pain within my breast, nor know I whether it arise from love, or only the wind colic. Time must shew. O Thumb, what do we to thy valour owe? Ask some reward, great as we can bestow. I ask not kingdoms, I can conquer those. I ask not money, money I've enough. For what I've done and what I mean to do, for giants slain and giants yet unborn, which I will slay, if this be called a debt, take my receipt in full, I ask but this, to sun myself in Hunkamunka's eyes. 
prodigious bold request be still my soul my heart is at the threshold of your mouth and waits its answer there oh do not frown i've tried to reason's tune to tune my soul but love did overwind and crack the string though jove in thunder had cried out you shan't i should have loved her still for oh strange fate then when i loved her least i loved her most it is resolved the princess is your own oh happy 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 thumb consider sir reward your soldier's merit but give not hunker munker to tom thumb tom thumb odd zooks my wide extended realm knows not a name so glorious as tom thumb let macedonia alexander boast let rome her caesars and her scipios show her messieurs france let holland boast mine heirs ireland her o's her max let scotland boast let england boast no other than tom thumb though greater yet his boasted merit was he shall not have my daughter that is pause ah sayest thou dolololo <laughs> i say he shan't then by our royal self we swear you lie <sighs> who but a dog who but a dog would use me as thou dost me who have lain these twenty years so loving by thy side <sighs> but i will be revenged i'll hang myself then tremble all who did this match persuade for riding on a cat from high i'll fall and squirt down royal vengeance on you all her majesty the queen is in a passion be she or be she not i'll to the girl and pave thy way o thumb now by herself we were indeed a pretty king of clouts to truckle to her will for when by force or art the wife her husband overreaches give him the petticoat and her the breeches whisper ye winds that hunkamunka's mine echoes repeat that hunkamunka's mine the dreadful business of war is o'er and beauty heavenly beauty crowns my toils i've thrown the bloody garment now aside and hymeneal sweets invite my bride so when some chimney-sweeper all the day hath through dark paths pursued the sooty way at night to wash his hands and face he flies and in his to other shirt with his brick-dust allies scene four grizzle solus where art thou grizzle where are now thy glories where are the drums that waken thee to honour greatness is a laced coat from monmouth street which fortune lends us for a day to wear to-morrow puts it on another's back the spiteful son but yesterday surveyed his rival high as st paul's coppola now may he see me as fleet ditch laid low scene five queen grizzle <sighs> teach me to scold prodigious-minded grizzle mountain of treason ugly as the devil 
teach this confounded hateful mouth of mine to spout forth words malicious as thyself words which might shame all billingsgate to speak far be it from my pride to think my tongue your royal lips can in that art instruct wherein you excel but may i ask without offence wherefore my queen would scold wherefore o oh, blood and thunder haven't you heard what every corner of the court resounds that little thumb will be a great man made i heard it i confess for who alas can always stop his ears but would my teeth by grinding knives had first been set on edge oh, would i had heard at the still noon of night the hallelujah of fire in every street arts bobs i have a mind to hang myself to think i should a grandmother be made by such a rascal sure the king forgets when in a pudding by his mother put the bastard by a tinker on a stile was dropped oh good lord grizzle can i bear to see him from a pudding mount the throne oh can oh can my hunker bear to take a pudding's offspring to her arms oh horror 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 cease my queen thy voice like twenty screech owls racks my brain then rouse thy spirit we may yet prevent this hated match ah we will nor fate itself should it conspire with tom thumb should cause it i'll swim through seas i'll ride upon the clouds i'll dig the earth i'll blow out every fire i'll rave i'll rant i'll rise i'll rush i'll roar fierce as the man whom smiling dolphins bore from the prosaic to the poetic shore i'll tear the scoundrel into twenty pieces uh, no prevent the match but hurt him not for though i would not have him have my daughter yet can we kill the man that killed the giants i tell you madam it was all a trick he made the giants first and then he killed them as fox hunters bring foxes to the wood and then with hounds drive them out again how have you seen no giants are there not now in the yard ten thousand proper giants indeed i cannot positively tell but firmly do believe there is not one hence from my sight thou traitor highway by all my stars thou envious tom thumb go sirrah go high away high thou art a setting dog be gone madam i go tom thumb shall feel the vengeance you have raised so when two dogs are fighting in the streets with a third dog one of the two dogs meets with angry teeth he bites him to the bone and this dog smarts for what that dog has done scene six queen sola and whither shall i go alack a day 
i love tom thumb but must not tell him so for what's a woman when her virtue's gone a coat without its lace wig out of buckle a stocking with a hole in it i can't live without my virtue or without tom thumb <sighs> then let me weigh them in two equal scales in this scale put my virtue that tom thumb alas tom thumb is heavier than my virtue but hold perhaps i may be left a widow this match prevented then tom thumb is mine in that dear hope i will forget my pain so when some wench to tothill bridewell sent with beating hemp and flogging she's content she hopes in time to ease her present pain at length is free and walks the streets again <laughs> end of act one